Amen. If you have a copy of God's Word, and I pray that you do, turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 15. Psalm 15. If you're a guest of ours, we're just spending some time in the Psalms this summer. And so last week we began this brief series, and we'll continue today. Uh, while you're turning there, I hope you've, if, if you haven't had a chance to look through your bulletin, there's an announcement in there uh, regarding uh, Lauren's uh, goodbye reception. Lauren will be leaving our mer- worship ministry team at the end of this month. And um, although we are sad to see her leave, we are excited for what God's doing in her life and uh, the life of her fiance and their upcoming marriage. And so um, there will be a reception, a drop-by reception for in honor of her on June 26th, immediately following the 11 o'clock service, all right, 11.15 service. So I want to encourage you to be a part of that. Psalm 15, if you are physically able, would you stand in honor, uh, stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? This is a psalm written by David, and let's walk through this together. He begins, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor, who despises the one rejected by the Lord but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word whatever the cost, who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. The one who does these things will never be shaken. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had to sing your praises, and now, Lord, we rejoice in the opportunity we have to study your word. Thank you for bringing us together today. Thank you for allowing us this opportunity to worship you freely and uninhibitedly, uh, and Lord, just to, to gather as the body of Christ, and we rejoice and we celebrate in that. Lord Jesus, speak to us today. Speak to every heart and every mind, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, if, uh, I, I want to begin by way of introduction. In our English translation, you'll see there the very first word is Lord. Lord in all capital letters, all right? And if you're following along with me in your copy of the notes there, when we see Lord in all capital letters, that, that is the Hebrew Yahweh or Jehovah, okay? And look with me here, that is the proper name of God. When the Hebrews wanted to refer to God in its in his most proper tense, they would use the name Yahweh or Jehovah. Matter of fact, the, the scribes took it so serious that every time in scripture when they were re- copying the scriptures, remember there wasn't a copy machine, there wasn't a printing press, and so for every additional copy of God's word it had to be handwritten. And so every time they came to the word Yahweh, Uh, what we translate Lord, they would literally grab a new writing instrument and continue. So every time you see the word Lord, just think in your mind that the Hebrew scribes would, would, would put down their current writing utensil and grab a new one. It was held with such high respect. And so that's the proper name of God. Look with me at some of these verses of Scripture where we see this, and, and I just want you to understand the significance of this name. In Psalm 68 and verse 4, read with me, sing to God, sing praises to his name, exalt him who rides on the clouds, his name is the Lord, and celebrate before him. 
In Isaiah 42 and verse 8, listen to what God says of himself. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. In Isaiah 43, verses 10 and 11, read with me. No God was formed before me, and there will be none after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. And so God declaratively says to us that he alone is God, that he alone is the one true God, and there is no other And all of these gods of our imagination and all of these gods of our creativity and all of these gods that we fabricated out of different things that you and I are familiar with, God says they are not gods. And there is no other. I alone am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Now, interestingly, this is the name by which God chose to reveal himself to Moses. Read with me from Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I was not known to them by my name, the Lord. So pretty fascinating that God would reveal himself to Moses in this way. Now, the name Yahweh comes from the Hebrew verb, to be. And as a result, it is closely associated to the idea of, of life itself, to, to being. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses was out in the wilderness, and uh, God appeared to him, if you'll remember, in that burning bush. And he called Moses. He says, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to deliver my people. I want you to, to lead my people out of bondage and slavery and into the promised land. Well, Moses, uh, rightfully so, asked a good question. He says, well, when I go back uh, to your people in Egypt and, and I tell them this, and they say, well, who told you to do this? What do I say to them? And in chapter 3 of Exodus, verses 14 and 15, listen carefully to how God replied to him. Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. He says, you tell them that Yahweh sent you, the God who is. Now, what is even more fascinating about this, in John chapter 8, when Jesus was engaged in a pretty intense conversation with the religious leaders, and he was telling them, if you knew who, who it was who was speaking to you, he said, Abraham longed for my day. And they look at him like, wait a minute, you're not even 50 years old yet. And you're telling us that Abraham longed for you. And Jesus said to them, before Abraham was, I am. Taking them back to Exodus chapter 3 and then declaring, I am Yahweh. I am the one true God and there is no other but me. If you'll look with me here on the screen, I just want you to see this and read with me. The name Yahweh implies that God is, that God is self-existent, that he is the uncaused cause, that he was and that he is and that he will always be. Church, just be reminded and encouraged of this. Yahweh alone is God, and before him nothing existed, and apart from him nothing can exist. 
It is in him where we find life and meaning and purpose. And that is the significance of this name, Yahweh, Lord. And so as you read your Bibles and as you come across Lord in all capital letters, understand the significance of that name. And so the psalmist asks the question here in verse 1. Who can come into the presence of Yahweh? Who can come into the presence of the one true God? Look what he says there. Who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? Now, David would ask the same question just a few chapters over in chapter 24 and verse 3. He would say it like this. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And so this idea we see in verse 1, to dwell in your tent or to live on your holy mountain implies a welcome invitation into God's presence. A welcome invitation into God's presence. And so here's the question rephrased a little bit. Who is welcome to come into the presence of God and worship him? That's the question the psalmist is asking. Who is welcome by God's invitation to come into his presence and worship him? Why is that? An important question. Why is the question, who is welcome to come into God's presence and worship him? Why is that an important question? Well, let me just give you some reasons. Look with me in your notes. First, Scripture teaches us that we were created by God to glorify him. And so life's purpose, at its most basic instinct, life's purpose, your purpose, my purpose, is to glorify God. That's why God created you. More than anything else, look with me at these verses of Scripture from Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7. God is speaking, and he says, Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who bears my name, watch this, and is created for my glory. I have formed them. Indeed, I have made them. Maybe you're here today, and you're, you're, you're kind of struggling with life. You're trying to understand, what is my purpose? Why am I here? What is my significance? There it is. More than anything else, your purpose and the significance of your life is that you would bring honor and glory to Almighty God. That your life would honor Him. There's no greater purpose for any of us when you really start to think about it. That in everything we do, we would honor him. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. Paul would say the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Read this with me. In him we have also received an inheritance, because we are predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we, had already, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ, watch this, might bring praise to his glory. <laughs> You and I have been destined, you and I have been appointed to live for the praise of God's glory. That's why God made us and God brought us and gave us life and breath that we would glorify him. And worship is the direct expression of our purpose for living to glorify God. Now, it is important that we all remember uh, that worship in Scripture is not limited to singing songs. Worship is an entire lifestyle lived for the glory of God. Look with me from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. The Bible says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. 
I have a bracelet that I've worn for over 10 years now, not this exact one, but the one just like it. And I have that verse written here, and it just says, glorify God in all things. And I wear this just as a daily reminder to myself that in everything I'm doing, whatever it is, I'm to bring glory to God. And it, it, it helps, one, to keep my, my, my mindset focused. It helps to keep me from making poor decisions. Just as this reminder that, that everything we do, we're to do for the glory of God. But secondly, Scripture commands us to worship God. So we are created for God's glory, we were co- and we're commanded to worship Him. L- read with me Deuteronomy 13 and verse 4. You must follow the Lord, there it is, Yahweh your God, and fear Him. You must keep His commands and listen to Him. Watch this. You must worship Him and remain faithful to Him. It's written in the imperative. It's a command we are told to engage in. Psalm 99, verses 5 and verse 9. Read that with me. Exalt the Lord our God. Bow in worship at his footstool. He is holy. Verse 9, exalt the Lord our God. Bow in worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord, for Yahweh our God is holy. But how would we define worship? I want to give you that definition. I've given you a very simple definition there in your notes and on the screen. Here's how we can define worship that allows for it to be all-encompassing. You ready? Devotion and allegiance to God. And so you and I were created for God's glory. We were created to worship Him. In other words, we were created that our lives would be fully devoted and and, and we would give full allegiance to the Lord. Not partial, not half, not most of the time, but all of the time. So, let's get back to the question the psalmist asks us. Who can come into the presence of God and worship him. Well, he gives us the answer there in verse 2. Let's look at that. The one who knows God and whose life honors God. There's the answer to the question. The one who knows God and whose life honors God. Look what he says here. The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart. Let's believe, uh, let's start with the third point there, which really comes first. The one who believes truth. And so, who, who can come into the presence of God and worship Him? Number one, the one who believes truth. The one who acknowledges the truth in his heart. This is the individual who has come to know and understand truth, God's truth. This is the individual who is walking in truth, who is committed to truth. Now, you and I understand from the, the, the rest of Scripture's revelation that this is ultimately realized through faith in Jesus Christ. Because if you've studied the idea of truth in Scripture, here's what we know. That in Scripture, truth is less about an idea or a philosophy or an ideology, and it is more about a person. Truth is a person. In John 14 and verse 6, what did Jesus say? Read this with me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus is truth. And so when the psalmist says, acknowledges truth in his heart, it is this idea, it implies that this individual knows God in a personal relationship. We have embraced God's truth. We have have surrendered to God's truth. And here's what we know. The person who knows Christ has been brought into the presence 
of God. Look with me at 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Look at this, watch this. That he what? Might bring you to God. Because here's what we know and understand from Scripture. Outside of faith in Christ, you and I are separated from God. Outside of faith in Christ, you and I are estranged from God. Outside of faith in Christ, our relationship with God is one of enmity and hostility. And so we are not in his presence. We have not been brought near to him. But through faith in Christ, we are brought near to the Father. That relationship is reconciled. It is made right. And so a personal relationship with Christ leads to the following two points, which we see in the first half of verse 2, all right? Who can come into the presence of God and worship him? Number Secondly, the one who lives blamelessly. The one who lives blamelessly. What does it mean to live blamelessly? One whose lifestyle is honoring to the Lord. Listen carefully. It refers to the regular practice of life that agrees with God and the ways of God. I want you to hear me this morning. Be be very careful to listen. Blameless, this word does not imply moral perfection, okay? We know no one is morally perfect. We also know that no one can be morally perfect. But we we can strive to live in such a manner that the regular practice of our life brings honor to the Lord. The works of the blameless man will stand the test of God's scrutiny. Paul said it like this in Philippians 2, verse 14 and 15. Read with me. So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world, by holding firm to the word of life. Now, let's look at that a little closer. That God desires we are to be blameless and pure, faultless. Now, notice what he says, in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. How's that? By holding firm to the word of life. In other words, God says this to us, that that as a follower of Christ, we are called to be different. We are called to be set apart. As a follower of Christ, we are called to a higher standard. That is the standard of God. Listen, as a Christian businessman, our business practices ought to be different than the rest of the world. As a Christian coach, we ought to coach differently. As a Christian teacher, we ought to teach differently. As a Christian uh, medical professional or legal professional, we ought to practice differently. Our life ought to be distinctly different as a follower of Christ. We ought to shine like stars in the world. Those around us in our sphere of influence ought to be able to look at us and notice there's something different about this person. They don't talk like we talk, and they don't laugh at the jokes we laugh at, and they don't, they don't do the, the underhanded, shady stuff that, that we're engaged in. They're above board. They're different. We ought to shine like stars in the world, we are called to walk blamelessly before the Lord. Now, before you think, man, how, how do I, I can't do this. How do I do this? What does this look like? None of us can do this in our own strength. None of us can do this in our own wisdom. None of us can do this in our own, our, our own charisma and talents and abilities. 
This is something that God does in us and through us through the presence and empowering of his Holy Spirit. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 1.8. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, listen. As you and I are faithful to abide in Christ, as you and I are faithful to live a life of worship and admiration and adoration, as we are faithful to just yield ourselves to Christ through the power of God's indwelling presence, he will will allow us and empower us to live a blameless life before him. Not not a perfect life. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to do dumb things. But thanks be to him that through his, the presence of his Holy Spirit, he will lead us to a blameless life. So, who can come into his presence? The one who lives blamelessly. Look next, though, the one who practices righteousness. Again, this is a reference to the regular practice of our life. The regular practice of our life agrees with the standards of God, the ways of God, the word of God. We practice righteousness. Look with me at Ephesians 5, 8 through 11. Paul writing to these Christians in Ephesus, look at what he says to them. For you were once darkness. Now, darkness is always a reference to sin and ungodliness in Scripture. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Testing what is pleasing in the Lord. Now, watch this last line. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness. In other words, live righteously. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3, look what he says again. So if you've been raised with Christ, if you know Christ is Savior, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I think that's one of the most challenging things to do as a follower of Christ in this world where, where there's so much emphasis put on stuff and pleasure and promotion and, and, and uh, professional growth and advancement and different things and buy a bigger house and drive a nicer car and wear fancier clothes. We've got all this pressure around us that, that our culture gives us. And Paul says, listen, don't set your minds on those things. Don't focus on earthly things. We're called to f- focus on matters of eternity. And here's what's very interesting. In verses 3 through 5 of chapter 15 here, we see some of these principles manifested. In verse 3, we see kindness manifested. He says, who does not slander with his tongue or who does not harm his friend. We see integrity manifested or discredit his neighbor. But honors, verse 4, honors those who fear the Lord. We see an encouraging person. We see an honest and trustworthy person there who keeps his word whatever the cost. We see a generous person, verse 5, who does not lend his silver at interest. And then in the last half of verse 5, we see a compassionate person, someone who doesn't take a bribe against the innocent. And so we see these ideas of living blamelessly and practicing righteousness lived out in this person's life. Now, uh, we can't do this outside of faith in Christ. All of this begins with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So, from the positive vantage point, 
The person who knows God through faith in Christ and whose life honors God is welcomed into the presence of God. But, but I want you to see the negative vantage point also. Look with me at verse 4. The language says, who despises the one rejected by the Lord. Now, it's interesting. In the original language, this isn't referring to an emotion, but here it is. Look with me in your notes. The one who hates sin. Who can come into the presence of God and worship him? The one who hates sin. The point of this language in verse 4 is not the emotion of hatred. It is the rejection of wicked and ungodly ways. As a follower of Christ, the ways of this world, the ways of the wicked and ungodly, listen, should be repulsive to us. Sin in our personal lives, sin in general, should bother us. The language is very specific. We should hate it. We should despise it. We, we should abhor it. Sin, first and foremost in our own life. Listen, sin should bother us so much that Scripture teaches us to put to death the sin in us. John Owen, one of my favorite authors, a Puritan from many, many years ago, made this statement, and I quote, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Look with me at Romans 8 and verse 13. Look what Paul writes to us. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit, by the indwelling presence and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit that lives in us, we put to death the deeds of the body, that is the works of the flesh. Look at what he says, you will live. What did uh, Jesus say to us in John 10.10? 10? I have come so that you may have life and what? Life abundantly. If we want to enjoy life to its fullest, if we want to get the most out of life, it's found within the boundaries God's given us. It's found in following after Christ. That's where life becomes enjoyable and pleasurable and fulfilling and content. It is after Christ. Paul gets even more detail. Look with me at Colossians 3, beginning in verse 5. He says, therefore, put to death, <laughs> crucify, eliminate, exterminate what belongs to your earthly nature. Then he gives us a list here. This is not an exhaustive list, but it's enough to get us started. He says, sexual immorality, that is any physical intimacy outside of a marriage relationship, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, because of these things, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things. Paul says, this is who you were when you were living in them. But now, now in Christ, he says again, put away all of the following. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Folks, God hates sin. And we should hate sin. So from the negative vantage point, the person who hates what God hates, sin, is welcome into the presence of God. Now, why, why is that true? Because we have died to sin and now live for Christ. We, we just read this earlier, Colossians 3, verse 3. For you 
died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now look with me here at your notes. This is the last thing I want you to see. This comes full circle. You ready? The person who is welcome into the presence of God is the person who has exercised faith in God's promise and provision of salvation. His one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord, Yahweh. Look with me at your scripture memory verse there. Ephesians 2 verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus... You who are far away, far away from the presence of God, far away from intimacy with God, far away from knowing God, far away from worshiping God, far away from glorifying God with your life, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so Yahweh is inviting us to come and worship, to come into his presence and worship him. Have you accepted his invitation? Have you RSVP'd in the affirmative and said, God, I want to come? And we come through Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you've never made a personal decision to surrender in faith to Jesus Christ. Why not today? Why not say yes to Jesus today? Not to religion, not to spirituality, not to a church or a denomination, but to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, I want to thank you for this day you've given us. Lord, I want to thank you for the opportunity you've given us to sing your praises and and to study your word. And Father God, I'm asking and inviting that you would work mightily in each of us. And Lord Jesus, if there's an individual in this room today who's never surrendered in faith to Christ, would you right now in this moment draw them to Jesus? Would you right now in this moment, Lord, show them their sin and their need of a Savior and bring them to a place where they surrender to you, to to you, your one and only Son who died on a cross, who paid the penalty of our sin, who rose from the dead victorious and who's coming again as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Father God, in these next few moments, would you work in a way that only you can work for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I want to invite you to stand.